Hey friends, M. Faring here. I am so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope we're able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all, plus learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay, friends, let's begin. Hello, hello. I'm so glad you joined me today as we continue in Abraham's developing story with God. And what a story it is, am I right? Wow. But before we dive into our study today, let's backtrack just one chapter to revisit chapter 15 with another insight I discovered in my research since recording the last episode. This covenant with God is a big deal, not only in the life of Abram, but in truthfully the entirety of the Bible, as we will see God continuing to work out the fulfillment of His promise from this moment right up to the times of Jesus' birth, death, and resurrection. See what I mean about it being a big deal? If you remember from our last episode, we left off with that scene of a smoking firepot and flaming torch passing through the halves of a carcass in a covenant ceremony. No matter how bizarre this all seems to us, there are a few things we need to understand from this moment, including number one, God passing through the pieces was a visible assurance to Abram that a covenant had been made with God and it was real. And number two, since Abram was put into a deep sleep during this ceremony, the covenant was one-sided, meaning that God was the only one required to keep the covenant. It did not matter what Abram did or did not do, God would keep his promises to Abram. Now that's some amazing grace for sure. Prior to all the covenant work, though, God initially came to Abram to reassure him of his earlier promises about a son to be born to him in Sarai. Listen to this perspective I found in Right Now Media's God's Unbreakable Promise Study in Day 2 of Week 3 titled, God Welcomes Our Honesty. We have all had those moments when we hear one thing, but our minds believe another. Our temptation is to ignore what doesn't make sense or to force it to make sense. Even if we are not active in our attempt, our minds are trying to resolve the conflict. What do you do when something doesn't line up with in your mind, in your experience, or maybe even your gut? We all do something. Abram did something. Abram asked questions. God was saying one thing, and Abram was experiencing another. God promised Abram offspring and descendants, yet he was still childless. God repeated his promise, yet Abram's situation stayed the same. After God repeated himself, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. Abram replied, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. God, in his patience and graciousness, repeated himself and got even more specific. He said, Your very own son shall be your heir. Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. So shall your offspring be. Genesis chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. It says that Abram believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Abram's belief was aligned with God's ways. We all need echoes or reminders of God's faithfulness. We get discouraged, we get weary in waiting, and we question who God is and what he will do. God welcomes our honesty, our questions, and our weariness. He sees our humanity and meets us in our frailty. Sometimes we are afraid to question God aloud. We may not have friends who let us question God, but God allows us to ask, to express, and to be honest with Him about our confusion and discouragement. And He is gracious to give us these reminders. We see them in the life of Abram, the lives of others in Scripture, and even in the life of Jesus. We need reminders, and God does not get upset that we ask. He is gracious to give. As we learned earlier, God moves towards action and makes a promise. Genesis chapter 15, verses 7-21. through Abram didn't have to do anything, and he didn't have to make sense of it all. God would completely and unilaterally take care of these promises. God would line it all up. Did you hear that, my friends? Abram didn't have to do anything, and he didn't have to make sense of it all. God would completely and unilaterally take care of these promises. God would line it all up. So good. And I know I am certainly very thankful that God is lining it up in my life for me and for you as well. Thank you, Father God. Thank you. Okay, let's officially move into our first reading today in Genesis chapter 15 from the New Living Translation of the Bible. It begins, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him, 
but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, The Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. And Abram agreed with Sarai's proposal. So Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abram as a wife. This happened ten years after Abram had settled in the land of Canaan. So Abram had sexual relations with Hagar and she became pregnant. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress, Sarai, with contempt. Then Sarai said to Abram, This is all your fault. I put my servant into your arms, and now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show who's wrong, you or me. Abram replied, Look, she is your servant, so deal with her as you see fit. Then Sarai treated Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away. The angel of the Lord found Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness along the road of Shur. The angel said to her, Hagar, Sarai's servant, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she replied. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. And then he added, I will give you more descendants than you can count. And the angel also said, you are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. You are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears, for the Lord has heard your cry of distress. This son of yours will be a wild man, as untamed as a wild donkey. He will raise his fist against everyone and everyone will be against him. Yes, he will live in open hostility against all of his relatives. Thereafter, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord, who had spoken to her. She said, You are the God who sees me. She also said, Have I truly seen the one who sees me? So that well was named Ber Lahai Roy, which means well of the living one who sees me. It can still be found between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar gave Abram a son, and Abram named him Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. Oh my, I don't know about you, but I am wondering exactly where do we begin with all this mess? Goodness gracious. In an effort to help us in trying to sort out what is happening here, listen into this overview from Tara Lee Cobble of the Bible Recap. In yesterday's episode, we ended with God making a covenant with Abram, and today we pick up to read a little bit of Sarai's story. By this point, she's at least 75 years old and still has not had a child, even though God had promised Abram a child when he visibly appeared to him. So she does what many of us do when we feel like God is holding out on us. She takes matters into her own hands. In those days, servants were considered possessions, which, let me pause here to say this very important thing. This is one of those things in Scripture that is descriptive, not prescriptive. It is telling us what is happening, not what should happen. This is not condoning treating people like possessions, but in this ancient culture, that's what was happening. And basically anything a servant owned, the master owned. So the child of a servant was considered the property of the master. Sarah used that cultural norm as her logic behind making her servant have sex with her husband. Because then if she had a child, Sarai owned it. Sarai was tired of waiting. She wanted to take a shortcut. Have you ever been there? Let me give you cause to reconsider. Sarai's fear and impatience has yielded millennia of war and destruction that's still happening around the world today. What am I talking about? Sarai's servant Hagar became pregnant with a child she would name Ishmael, and Ishmael is the father of Islam, so Muslims regard him as a prophet and the ancestor of Muhammad. Years later, when Sarai and Abram finally have their first child together, his name is Isaac. He begins a line of Abraham from which the Israelites descend. Genetically, the Israelites of the Old Testament are the Jewish people of today. And in case you aren't up on politics and world news, Muslims and Jews have been at war for basically 4,000 years. Point being, our sin affects others. We never sin in isolation. Don't let your fears or your mistrust of God determine your actions. Okay, moving on. After Hagar got pregnant, Sarai abused her and Hagar fled from her home into the wilderness, pregnant, abused, and alone. Then, in Genesis 16, verse 7, something very important happens. Let me set this up for us. Sometimes in scriptures we see the term, an angel of the Lord. That phrase refers to a messenger angel who shows up on the scene to deliver a message sent by God. But in this instance, the text says, the angel of the Lord, and that's entirely different. Whenever you see the phrase, the angel of the Lord, and more specifically, the messenger of Yahweh, it's referring to the pre-incarnate Jesus. The term pre-incarnate just means before Jesus was born. So all signs point to this being the Son of God appearing on earth before he was born as a human named Jesus. The word for this is theophany, which means a visible manifestation of God. 
And this particular kind of theophany, where God the Son shows up, is called a Christophany, named after Christ. Yesterday we talked about a different kind of theophany where God the Father appeared as fire in the covenant ceremony with Abram. But in this instance, God the Son shows up as a man. You're probably like, no way, Tara Lee. It was an angel, not a man. You're right, and so am I. First of all, forget what you know about angels from Renaissance paintings. Most of those artists had not read the Bible. Exhibit A, they give us a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus, even though he was a Jewish man. And Exhibit B, they give us flying, haloed angels with two wings. No angels in Scripture have two wings. Messenger angels, like the ones that show up on earth, have zero wings. Scripture always depicts them as human males who speak the local language. And some people believe they are really large and imposing, especially since the possibly related Nephilim from Genesis chapter 6 were giants. If angels are giants, that could account for why people are so afraid of angels when they show up on the scene. But that could also be because they seem to materialize out of thin air. I like to think it's both of those reasons. But how do we know this angel man was God? A few things. In chapter 16, verse 10, it says, I will multiply your offspring. Angels can't do that. Then Genesis 16, verse 13 says, It was the Lord who had spoken to her. Okay. So those are some pretty big thoughts and words even. Are you still with me? Theophany, Christophany, the angel of the Lord. Whoa. Can you even imagine? Jesus, God the Son, shows up to Hagar in the wilderness. So tender. Moving on though, I want to take a moment to share some resources I found that will help us to put some flesh, so to speak, on the story of Abram, Sarai, and Hagar as found here. Oftentimes, it seems that we, or me at least, reads through these stories found on the pages of Scripture without taking a moment to fully recognize that these are real people, real struggles, real emotions, all the things. With that in mind, listen to a few resources I found, including this one from the Small Stories of a Big God website, as linked in the show notes. The Terribly Bad Decisions of Sarai and the Outsider Hagar reads, Then Sarai said to Abram, This is all your fault. I put my servant into your arms, and now she's pregnant, and she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show who's wrong, you or me. Abram replied, Look, she is your servant, so deal with her as you see fit. Then Sarai treated Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away. Genesis chapter 16, verses 5 and 6. There they are, pretty much at the beginning of the story. We usually concentrate on Abraham, And they are crucial to this story God tells us about his plan for saving the whole world. Sort of funny that. Think about it. God decided to put his plan for redemption into the womb of an old woman. A beautiful woman, but an old, discouraged, lost, all hope and what little there was left of faith woman. You may not remember the story. Most of us do not. Let me start off by giving you a short paragraph telling you the big picture of each of them to help you catch up. If Sarai was here with us, she would tell you, I was self-destructive and broken, but God brought me laughter. Sarai was dependent on a lying husband that would later be named Abraham, who abandoned her when he feared for his own safety, yet she remained faithful. Desperate for a child, she sacrificed the intimacy of her marriage and the trust of her closest friend for her own advantage. But God visited her and brought laughter into her life. If Hagar was here with us, she would tell you, I was invisible, cast out, and broken, but God saw me. Hagar was powerless over her own life and under the authority of others. She was used for the child she could deliver and discarded. Angry, she struck back at others. Abused, she ran away. But God pursued her in the wilderness, not once, but twice. God saw her. God guided her. God promised a future for her son. The operative words here are, but God. The story started when God called a man named Abram to follow him. God led him into a land he promised would be for Abram and his descendants, Those descendants would come through his wife, Sarai. Abram followed, sort of. But when times got rough, he didn't quite trust this God, so he took off to a foreign land of Egypt. Egypt always seems to be waiting in the wings, offering something better. Or worse. Anyway, Abram got scared. His wife was so very beautiful, he was afraid the Egyptians would murder him to get to her. So he just went ahead and offered her up. She's my sister. Go ahead, you can have her for your harem. This is how we first meet Sarai. Beautiful, but abandoned at the drop of a hat by her husband. Well, that's a lovely marriage. God was not happy with this situation. The Pharaoh and all his harem became ill until he discovered the very married Sarai was the problem. 
Sarai and her husband Abram are invited to leave Egypt, and when they return to Canaan, their promised land, an Egyptian slave named Hagar accompanies them. About now we begin to understand that there is a big problem with this plan of God to bless Abram and the whole world with descendants that outnumber the stars in the night sky. Apparently, Sarai is infertile. They have been married a long, long time, and she has never known the joy of conceiving a baby. And Sarai is getting older and older. This is a problem. If you have longed for a child and had difficulty conceiving, I don't need to explain Sarai's heartbreak to you. And in this culture at this time, a woman who could not produce children was considered without worth. Her value depended on the sons she would give her husband to carry on the family line. That was really all that mattered. No son, no value. So while Abram is wandering around talking with God about the stars and the number of grains of sand in the desert, Sarai comes up with what seems like a pretty good plan to her. There she is, Hagar. She is young. She is pretty enough. She is dependent on Sarai. She has no family or friends here in this foreign land. Why not have her conceive a child by Abram and then they can just call the child their own and the problem is solved and everyone can get on with this business of prospering in the new land. Sounds good, right? We know what happens. Sarai introduces this idea to Abram. He agrees to it. Sarai's plan works. Hagar conceives Abram's child and everybody is happy or not. Hagar is not happy. She is young, and I am just guessing she may have looked up to the woman she served, Sarai, as someone she cared for and trusted. They were together every day. Hagar was Sarai's constant companion. Hagar was there for Sarai to serve her every need and to make sure she was well taken care of. Perhaps they slept in the same tent. They ate together. They spent hours together like family. And now Sarai had used Hagar for her own needs. And not only that, when Hagar's child is born, it will not be her own, but will be Sarai's. I am betting Hagar feels betrayed, used, angry. Yeah, and it shows. Hagar is not happy. Sarai is not happy. And you know whose fault it is, right? Abram's. And God's for closing her womb in the first place. Listen into this little conversation. Then Sarai said to Abram, this is all your fault. I put my servant into your arms, but now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show who's wrong, you or me. Abram replied, look, she's your servant, so deal with her as you see fit. Then Sarai treated Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away. We don't think about Hagar too much in our nice, neat little Bible story world, but let's think about her today. First, she is very alone. There was probably only one woman in her life, one relationship in her life, Sarai. Now the woman she was closest to has hurt her, possibly physically, emotionally, verbally. She must have been desperate. She runs away into the harsh, deadly place, the wilderness. She has nothing. She has no one. She has no hope. But God. The author then shares here, This is a story I shared last week with women who can relate more to the story of Hagar than they can to the story of Sarai. We pause here to ask questions, to share their own stories of hurt and heartbreak, their stories of being beaten, kicked, abused, their stories of being pregnant and alone, their stories of being abandoned by the ones they thought once cared for them. How do you undo such hurt? How do you enter into such pain? and lift it off their shoulders. Sometimes God sends us into the wilderness to speak for him, to look into the face of another for him. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert, and he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Genesis chapter 16, verses 7 and 8. The angel of the Lord found Hagar. I love the beginning of this statement. This is our God. Our God pursues us into the desert. He means to follow us into our despair and overtake us. He speaks to us. He asks us questions. Where have you come from and where are you going? These are really good questions. When we are in a wilderness, we need to ask these questions. Where have I come from? How did I get here? You might be like Hagar. Circumstances beyond your control have knocked you off your feet. Or you may be more like Sarai, and some really bad decisions of your own have caused those around you a whole lot of pain and no small portion of trouble. Look closely. Examine your heart. Don't gloss over it. Own your actions. See your sin. Why? Because this God of ours doesn't intend to leave you there, in the wilderness of loss. He asks the next question. Where are you going? For Hagar, the solution seemed harsh. Go back. Let me say up front, God never intends for us to live in a violent situation. We are never ever to go back into the arms of someone who abuses us. Yet Hagar would be returning to the tents of Sarai, with a new knowledge of who she was and where she was going. No longer alone, Hagar would be escorted by a God who not only saw her, 
but she now saw him, and this would make all the difference. God knew her future. He lays it out for her line by line. Her descendants would be too many to count. Her son would be named Ishmael, which means the Lord hears, and her son would be a fighter. When you read the scripture, the nature of her son seems a little disturbing, but that is not what she takes away from this conversation. This is her response. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. Genesis chapter 16, verse 3. Did you hear? God saw her, and now she saw God. Seeing the God who sees us makes all the difference. It changes our world. It changed Hagar's difficult, painful, powerless life into a life with a future. God saw her and spoke life into her, and now her eyes were open and she could see him. This is what a relationship with the Lord looks like. Her circumstances are still hard, but God sees her. God hears her, and now she sees him. She is not alone. She carries a child in her womb and hope in her heart. I'm imagining she went back into the tents of Sarai with a softer countenance, a sweeter attitude. Maybe she was more compassionate, kinder, more loving. She would give birth to Abram's son Ishmael. But that wouldn't change the desperate hurt of Sarai, who God had now renamed Sarah. The story isn't over. I have a feeling God is going to show up again and do the things that only God can do. Moving on, let's hear this perspective about Hagar by Liz Curtis Higgs, author of the book Slightly Bad Girls of the Bible. She says, Our story starts out looking like the plot of the movie Mean Girls circa 1900 BC, but get ready for a surprisingly happy ending. Before we meet Hagar, let's touch base with her aging barren mistress, Sarai, who was desperate for a child. How desperate? She told her servant Abram, Go sleep with my maidservant. Gulp. However common that custom was in ancient Canaan, Sarai should have trusted God to bless her womb. Instead, she took matters into her own hands and forced Hagar to take her place in Abram's bed. Turnabout is unfair play. Hagar soon took her revenge. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Verse 4. An insolent tone, an exaggerated shrug, a dismissive hand gesture. Honey, we've seen that movie. Abram refused to get involved and told his wife, do with her whatever you think best. Unfortunately, Sarai did her worst. She mistreated Hagar. The message puts it more bluntly. Sarai was abusive to Hagar. The Hebrew text makes it clear violence was involved. To think one of our matriarchs had such a dark side. Poor, pregnant Hagar. Hagar's name means flight, and sure enough, this Egyptian slave took off running, breaking the law of the land by doing so. Woefully unprepared, Hagar collapsed in the desert, but you'll never guess who came looking for her. Lost and found. The same one who watches over you had his eye on our runaway slave and sent an ambassador on his behalf. The angel of the Lord found Hagar. Since this angel looked human, no wings, no halo, Hagar didn't hide her face in fear, even though he knew her name. When Hagar admitted fleeing from home, the angel gave her the worst news in town. Go back to your mistress and submit to her. A harsh command? No, a loving one. The wilderness was no place for an expectant mother. At home, Hagar would at least be fed, clothed, and sheltered. In the months to come, her child would be cared for. She'd also have to face her mean-spirited mistress. God knew he was asking a great deal of Hagar, so he showered her with promises. Her descendants would be too numerous to count, and she would give birth to a son, guaranteeing her Abram's protection. Now hear this. Then came some truly good news. The Lord has heard of your misery. How like God to ease our pain by listening and by whispering to our heart, I hear you, dear one. I know this will be hard, but have no fear. You won't be alone. In response, Hagar did something no one else in the Bible dared to do. She named God. Yes, she did. Hagar boldly gave him the name God who sees me, a personal relationship indeed. Hagar was found by God, seen by God, and heard by God, even though she was a slave, not a master, an Egyptian, not a Hebrew, a woman not a man. How's that for justice? Whenever you feel unnoticed, remember our ancient sister Hagar and take note. We're loved by a God who listens. And then when plans don't go our way from first five's Genesis study of Genesis chapter 16 verses 7 and 8, we read, abused, unwanted, poor, rejected, single, pregnant. Hagar had some good reasons to run away, but the Lord had something else in mind for her, a better plan that would change her life and dramatically alter the future of the baby she was carrying inside of her. 
But why should she listen? Why should she go back to Sarai, who harshly ruled over her, and Abram, who was the father of her child but wanted nothing to do with her or the baby? Whom could she trust? Who would take care of her in such a volatile environment? In this brief encounter, the angel of the Lord gave Hagar some information. In verse 9, he gave instruction, go back to your mistress and submit to her. In verse 11, confirmation, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. Also in verse 11, a declaration, you shall name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard of your misery. And then in verse 10, a promise, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Although Hagar felt invisible, God saw her. Although Hagar's cries for help were ignored by others, God heard her and responded. God comforted Hagar with a promise and validated the calling he had placed on her life. How did Hagar respond? She responded in faith. You are the God who sees me. I have now seen the one who sees me. Verse 13. God's assignment for Hagar wouldn't be easy. She would give birth to Abram's first son, Ishmael, but he would not be regarded favorably. Yet she knew the Lord was with her and would take care of her, even if no one else did. Are you currently dealing with a situation that's difficult or seems unfair? Maybe you're facing an overwhelming assignment that's more than you can handle. Are others causing you to feel rejected, unwanted, and invisible? Friend, God sees you. He knows the difficulty you're facing and He's ready to help. Will you trust Him? Will you respond in faith? Yes, God sees you. He notices you. You are His focus. You have His attention. When you realize that God sees you, you walk in more than your present. You can walk in your potential. He sees the prayers you pray. He sees the tears you cry. He sees the work you do. He sees every good decision and every mistake. And He sees every success and every failure. He sees every strength and every weakness. And still, He chooses you. He could do His hope-dispensing work through anyone, but He chooses you, and He chooses me. Before we move on from here, let's pause a moment to consider this point I found in my research. Abram's remarkable encounter with God in Genesis chapter 15 has not cured his faithlessness. In Genesis 15, we see that God promises Abram and Sarai a son of their own flesh and blood. Genesis 15 verse 6 tells us that Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. But then we turned over just one chapter to Genesis 16 and we see Abram and Sarai taking matters into their own hands. In Genesis chapter 16 verses 11 and 12, we see the eventual outcome of Abram and Sarai's decision to get ahead of God's plan by having Abram conceive a son with Sarai's servant, Hagar. Yes, Abram now had a son of his own flesh and blood, but these verses describe the fallout of such a choice. With Abram and Sarai's faithless inability to trust God for the fulfillment of the promise for a child in mind, look back over chapters 12 through 16 and consider how these chapters show God's commitment to his promise even in the face of human faithlessness. Faithlessness. Ouch. What a hard word, but oh so true when we make the choice to look at what is in front of us and then to decide we have to figure this thing out, to manipulate the situation, to quote-unquote help God out. Oof. If nothing else, one thing we can know for sure when reviewing chapters 12 through 16, and in our own lives even, is this fact. When we are faithless, God is faithful. Continuing on in our readings for today, I'm going to go ahead and read Genesis chapters 17 through 19 together, as the storyline seemed to flow from one right into the other, and for the sake of our study and discussion time. Chapter 17 reads, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Serve me faithfully and live a blameless life. I will make a covenant with you, by which I will guarantee to give you countless descendants. At this, Abram fell face down on the ground. Then God said to him, This is my covenant with you. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. What's more, I'm changing your name. It will no longer be Abram. Instead, you will be called Abraham, for you will be the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful. Your descendants will become many nations, and kings will be among them. I will confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you from generation to generation. This is the everlasting covenant. I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you, and I will give the entire land of Canaan where you now live as a foreigner to you and your descendants. It will be their possession forever, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, Your responsibility is to obey the terms of the covenant. You and all your descendants have this continual responsibility. This is the covenant that you and your descendants must keep. 
Each male among you must be circumcised. You must cut off the flesh of your foreskin as a sign of the covenant between me and you. From generation to generation, every male child must be circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. This applies not only to the members of your family, but also to the servants born into your household and the foreign-born servants whom you have purchased. All must be circumcised. Your bodies will bear the mark of my everlasting covenant. Any male who fails to be circumcised will be cut off from the covenant family for breaking the covenant. Then God said to Abraham regarding Sarai, your wife, her name will no longer be Sarai. From now on, her name will be Sarah, and I will bless her and give you a son from her. Yes, I will bless her richly, and she will become the mother of many nations. Kings of nations will be among her descendants. Then Abraham bowed down to the ground, but he laughed to himself in disbelief. How could I become a father at the age of 100, he thought, and how can Sarah have a baby when she is 90 years old? So Abraham said to God, May Ishmael live under your special blessing. But God replied, No, Sarah, your wife, will give birth to a son for you. You will name him Isaac, and I will confirm my covenant with him and his descendants as an everlasting covenant. As for Ishmael, I will bless him also, just as you have asked. I will make him extremely fruitful and multiply his descendants. He will become the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant will be confirmed with Isaac, who will be born to you and Sarah about this time next year. When God had finished speaking, he left Abraham. On the very next day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and every male in his household, including those born there and those he had just bought. Then he circumcised them, cutting off their foreskins, just as God had told him. Abraham was ninety-nine years old when he was circumcised, and Ishmael, his son, was thirteen. Both Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised on that same day along with all the other men and boys of the household. Whether they were born there or bought as servants, all were circumcised with him. Genesis 18 The Lord appeared again to Abraham near the oak grove belonging to Mamre. One day Abraham was sitting at the entrance of his tent during the hottest part of the day. He looked up and noticed three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he ran to meet them and welcomed them, bowing low to the ground. My Lord, he said, if it pleases you, stop here for a while. Rest in the shade of this tree while water is brought to wash your feet. And since you've honored your servant with this visit, let me prepare some food to refresh you before you continue on your journey. All right, they said. Do as you have said. So Abraham ran back to the tent and said to Sarah, Hurry, get three large measures of your best flour, knead it into dough, and bake some bread. Then Abraham ran out to the herd and chose a tender calf and gave it to a servant who quickly prepared it. When the food was ready, Abraham took some yogurt and milk and the roasted meat, and he served it to the men. As they ate, Abraham waited on them in the shade of the trees. "'Where is Sarah, your wife?' the visitors asked. "'She's inside the tent,' Abraham replied. Then one of them said, "'I will return to you about this time next year, and your wife Sarah will have a son.'" Sarah was listening to this conversation from the tent. Abraham and Sarah were both very old by this time, and Sarah was long past the age of having children. So she laughed silently to herself and said, How could a worn-out woman like me enjoy such pleasure, especially when my master, my husband, is also so old? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? Why did she say, Can an old woman like me have a baby? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she denied it, saying, I didn't laugh. But the Lord said, No, you did laugh. Then the men got up from their meal and looked toward Sodom. As they left, Abraham went with them and to send them on their way. Should I hide my plan from Abraham, the Lord asked? For Abraham will certainly become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. I have singled him out so that he will direct his sons and their families to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Then I will do for Abraham all I have promised. So the Lord told Abraham, I have heard a great outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah because her sin is so flagrant. I am going down to see if their actions are as wicked as I have heard. If not, I want to know. The other men turned and headed toward Sodom, but the Lord remained with Abraham. Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away both the righteous and the wicked? Suppose you find fifty righteous people living there in the city. Will you still sweep it away and not spare it for their sakes? Surely you wouldn't do such a thing, destroying the righteous along with the wicked. Why, you would be treating the righteous and the wicked exactly the same. Surely you wouldn't do that. Should not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And the Lord replied, If I find fifty righteous people in Sodom, I will spare the entire city for their sake. Then Abram spoke again, Since I have begun, let me speak further to my Lord, even though I am but dust and ashes. 
Suppose there are only 45 righteous people rather than 50. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And the Lord said, I would not destroy it if I find 45 righteous people there. Then Abraham pressed his request further. Suppose there are only 40. And the Lord replied, I will not destroy it for the sake of the 40. Please don't be angry, my Lord, Abraham pleaded. Let me speak. Suppose only 30 righteous people are found. And the Lord replied, I would not destroy it if I find 30. Then Abraham said, Since I have dared to speak to the Lord, let me continue. Suppose there are only twenty. And the Lord replied, Then I will not destroy it for the sake of the twenty. Finally, Abraham said, Lord, please don't be angry with me if I speak one more time. Suppose only ten are found. And the Lord replied, Then I will not destroy it for the sake of the ten. When the Lord had finished his conversation with Abraham, he went on his way, and Abraham returned to his tent. Genesis 19 That evening, the two angels came to the entrance of the city of Sodom. Lot was sitting there, and when he saw them, he stood up to meet them. Then he welcomed them and bowed with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, come to my home to wash your feet and be my guests for the night. You may then get up early in the morning and be on your way again. Oh no, they replied, we'll just spend the night out here in the city square. But Lot insisted, so at last they went home with him. Lot prepared a feast for them, complete with fresh bread made without yeast, and they ate. But before they retired for the night, all the men of Sodom, young and old, came from all around the city and surrounded the house. They shouted to Lot, Where are the men that came to spend the night with you? Bring them out to us so we can have sex with them. So Lot stepped outside to talk to them, shutting the door behind him. Please, my brothers, he begged, don't do such a wicked thing. Look, I have two virgin daughters. Let me bring them out to you and you can do with them as you wish. But please leave these men alone, for they are my guests and they are under my protection. Stand back, they shouted. This fellow came to town as an outsider, and now he's acting like our judge? We'll treat you far worse than those other men. And they lunged toward Lot to break the door down. But the two angels reached out, pulled Lot into the house, and bolted the door. Then they blinded all the men, young and old, who were at the door of the house, so they gave up trying to get inside. Meanwhile, the angels questioned Lot. Do you have any other relatives here in the city, they asked? Get them out of this place, your sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone else, for we are about to destroy this city completely. The outcry against this place is so great, it has reached the Lord, and he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot rushed out to tell his daughter's fiancés, Quick, get out of the city, the Lord is about to destroy it. But the young men thought he was only joking. At dawn the next morning, the angels became insistent. Hurry, they said to Lot, take your wife and your two daughters who are here. Get out right now, or you will be swept away in the destruction of the city. When Lot still hesitated, the angels seized his hand and the hands of his wife and two daughters and rushed them to safety outside the city, for the Lord was merciful. When they were safely out of the city, one of the angels ordered, Run for your lives and don't look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. Oh no, my lord, Lot begged. You have been so gracious to me and saved my life and you have shown such great kindness. But I cannot go to the mountains. Disaster would catch up to me there and I would soon die. See, there is a small village nearby. Please let me go there instead. Don't you see how small it is? Then my life will be saved. All right, the angel said, I will grant your request. I will not destroy the little village, but hurry, escape to it, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. This explains why that village was known as Zor, which means little place. Lot reached the village just as the sun was rising over the horizon. Then the Lord rained down fire and burning sulfur from the sky on Sodom and Gomorrah. He utterly destroyed them, along with other cities and villages of the plain, wiping out all of the people and every bit of vegetation. But Lot's wife looked back as she was following behind him, and she turned into a pillar of salt. Abraham got up early that morning and hurried out to the place where he had stood in the Lord's presence. He looked out across the plain toward Sodom and Gomorrah and watched as columns of smoke rose from the cities like smoke from a furnace. But God had listened to Abraham's request and kept Lot safe, removing him from the disaster that engulfed the cities on the plain. Afterward, Lot left Zoar because he was afraid of the people there, and he went to live in a cave in the mountains with his two daughters. One day, the older daughter said to her sister, There are no men left anywhere in this entire area, so we can't get married like everyone else, and our father will soon be too old to have children. Come, let's get him drunk with wine, and then we'll have sex with him. That way we will preserve our family line through our father. So that night they got him drunk with wine, and the older daughter went in and had intercourse with her father. He was unaware of her lying down or getting up again. The next morning, the older daughter said to her younger sister, I had sex with our father last night. Let's get him drunk with wine again tonight, and you go in and have sex with him. That way we will preserve our family line through our father. 
So that night they got him drunk with wine again, and the younger daughter went in and had intercourse with him. As before, he was unaware of her lying down or getting up again. As a result, both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their own father. When the older daughter gave birth to a son, she named him Moab. He became the ancestor of the nation known as the Moabites. When the younger daughter gave birth to a son, she named him Ben-Ami because he became ancestor of a nation now known as the Ammonites. Phew, friends, that is a lot. Is it just me or does Abraham's story seem to be one dramatic event after another? Truthfully, I am wondering how many of us can relate to that feeling about our own lives at times. Goodness gracious, for sure. As we lean into what is happening in these chapters, how about we revisit the idea of putting flesh on what we see happening in these verses by reading more from the small stories of a big God website in the post titled, When God Shows Up, The Impossible Stories of Hagar and Sarah. It begins, This is a story of God showing up in unlikely places at unlikely times with impossible messages for two women who are in impossible situations. But God has a question for both. Is anything too hard for the Lord? It is a good question. We will do well to think about it. Last time we left Hagar pregnant and alone in the desert. God had sent his angel to find her, telling her she was seen and she was heard. He sent her back into the tents of Sarai with the name of her coming son whispering reassurance in her heart. Ishmael, the Lord hears. This time God shows up again. This time he makes an appearance at the tents of Abram and Sarai, who have both been renamed Abram to Abraham from exalted father to father of a multitude, and Sarai to Sarah, from my Sarah or my princess, to princess, woman of strength, mother of nation. Kings of peoples shall be from her. This whole idea of the Lord caring about our names is beautiful and humbling and too deep and wide to visit today. Let's just say for the moment when the Lord enters our lives, he not only changes our names, he also changes us to reflect the future he has for us. Names like words are incredibly important to God. Soon he will bring another name into the lives of Abraham and Sarah. All this conversation about names was happening when God was establishing a covenant called circumcision with Abraham. Again, too much to get into today, but while God was teaching Abraham about this beautiful ceremony of belonging, he also reaffirmed the coming son through Sarah. This son of Sarah would be the son of God's promise, not Ishmael. This not yet conceived, not yet born son would be named Isaac, and the meaning is surprisingly delightful laughter. And that is exactly what Abraham did. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? Genesis seventeen seventeen. Soon afterward, three men showed up at the tents of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham begs his three visitors to stay for dinner, and before long, as they rest in the shade and feed on roasted meat and curds and cake made from the finest flour, they ask Abraham a question. Where is your wife, Sarah? Told she is in the tents, the Lord declares, This time next year I will return, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. It was Sarah's turn to laugh, and the Lord calls her out on it. The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Genesis chapter 18, verses 13 through 15. Is anything too hard for the Lord? This word hard is also translated as impossible or wonderful. Use any of these translations and the meaning is the same. Is anything too impossible for the Lord? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Is it? When Sarah heard the Lord's voice, it was too much for her to believe. Sarah laughed at God. Have you ever felt like that? That God wasn't to be trusted? that nothing good could be possible for you. Our God is an unbelievable God. It is hard to trust Him. It is hard to believe Him. But God can do things we think are too hard, too unbelievable, too impossible, too wonderful. Now listen to this perspective as found in a better plan from First Five's Genesis study about Genesis chapter 17, verse 21. With the birth of Ishmael, we've seen proof of Abram's faith that the Lord would make him a father of many nations. Clearly, Abraham believed God's promise. He just didn't trust God's process. In today's passage, we see God had another better plan. God's plan was an invitation to stretch Abram's faith. God calls Abram to a life cut off from his old practices and patterns. This would be symbolized in two ways. First, God changed his name from Abram to Abraham. Second, 
God instructs Abraham to observe the law of circumcision, symbolizing Abraham's complete surrender not just to God's word, but also God's ways. Circumcision showed Abraham's trust was in the Lord, not in his own flesh, to put it delicately. This call to obedience was followed by an unbelievable promise. God would demonstrate his faithfulness to Abraham by giving him and his wife Sarah a son. They would name him Isaac. The Bible tells us Abraham went that very day to circumcise himself and the men of his household. Can I ask you to think about the faith it took for Abraham to honor God in the circumcision when God's promise of Isaac depended on that very part of his anatomy? Not to be crass, but the circumstances of his circumcision couldn't have been exactly clinical, and the recovery was likely difficult. And yet, in less than a year, Abraham would be holding the reality of God's promise in his arms. Abraham had to completely trust God for the blessings of his son Isaac. His story reminds us that God's greatest promises often invite the greatest faith. Let me repeat that last line again for us, friends. His story reminds us that God's greatest promises often invite the greatest faith. 100% true, am I right? 100%. Moving on, the Bible recap has this to share in regards to chapter 18. We get another theophany in chapter 18. Today is just chock full of God's earthly appearances. Again, there are references to the Lord appearing to him in verse 1, along with two other men who are identified in chapter 19, verse 1, as angels. Also, you may have noticed that that was an all-caps Lord, like we talked about on day 1. This is Yahweh, God's personal name, often pronounced Yahweh or Jehovah. Abraham is a pretty powerful rich man, but he was so struck by this appearance that he bowed down in reverence and offered worship. And he did not want God to leave. He wanted to stay in God's presence. Verse 10 confirms again that this was God by saying, The all-caps Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. Verse 19 confirms this again when he says, I have chosen him. I could keep going, but I'll finish with this last one. In verse 25, when Abraham is begging God to not destroy Sodom, which God is saying he's going to do, Abraham respectfully refers to him as the judge of all the earth. I go back and forth on this, but I'm inclined to believe that this particular theophany was not God the Son, but God the Father, showing up as a human. I'm used to the idea of God the Son's divine appearance as a human, but not God the Father with skin. It honestly just blows my mind and makes me want to stop talking. Wow. Just wow. Next, the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah in She Reads True's study on Genesis offers us this perspective. As I read about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, I couldn't help think about Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. Toward the conclusion of the film adaptation, we see Pelinar Fields lying in smoky ruins after battle. It's a scene of utter and complete destruction. I remember watching this scene for the first time, wondering as the camera panned out if there'd be any familiar characters still alive among the wreckage. I wanted to see a remnant of the good guys to know the mercy had been shown to at least one person, or hobbit, or elf. Many of us hear words like grace and mercy and immediately jump to Jesus in the New Testament. But since we know that Christ is the exact expression of God's nature, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it won't do to consider God in the Old Testament any less gracious or merciful. God's mercy is not hard to find in the Old Testament. It's woven throughout the book of Genesis like a flowering vine, connecting the stories in Christ's lineage. Even when people continue to make bad decisions that bring about their own demise or widespread catastrophe, God's desire is for people to be saved. We see the ultimate display of God's mercy in His Son, Jesus Christ, through the power of His resurrection. There is healing for the world. During His exchange with Abraham, God listens to Abraham's plea and gives the people a chance. The Lord said, If I find fifty righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. They continue to talk, and that number of fifty is reduced to only ten. But sadly, not even ten can be found. God still saves Lot, Abraham's nephew, and a familiar face Abraham knows and loves. God's mercy is always there and greater than we expect, even when most people reject it. Without Christ, it's our own hearts that resemble that plane of smoking ruins. Even after receiving the Holy Spirit, we still wrestle with sin. We routinely choose to submit to our own will instead of the Spirit. Our sins may not seem as flagrant as those of Sodom and Gomorrah, but we are all sinners in need of grace. Hallelujah! Christ has broken the curse of sin and death. Even now, Christ, the exact expression of the Old Testament God with whom Abraham bargained and pleaded for the lives of his community, invites us to accept the gift of eternal life. He is for us, and His mercy is greater than we think. 
Remembering this, may we echo Abraham's plea for the redemption of our own hearts, our city, and our world. What a thought, right? Let me say that again. Even now, Christ, the exact expression of the Old Testament God with whom Abraham bargained and pleaded for the lives of his community, invites us to accept the gift of eternal life. He is for us, and His mercy is greater than we think. Amazing. Truly amazing. Let's now return to the Bible recap for this overview. Tara Lee Cobble says, Chapter 18 wrapped up with a bit of a cliffhanger. God told Abraham he was going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their wickedness. And Abraham was trying to negotiate with God not to destroy the city of Sodom in particular, the city where his nephew Lot lived. We know Abraham really cared for Lot because, as you may recall, Abraham traveled hundreds of miles with 318 of his warrior servants to rescue Lot and his family when they were kidnapped and taken hostage during a war. So here we are today with two angels showing up in chapter 19, verse 1, and again they appeared as human males. We know this because that's how they are referred to in verse 10. Verse 5 gives us reason to believe that the human appearance they took on was probably physically attractive because the local men demanded to have sex with them. This is another scenario where, like in Genesis 6, Humans are attempting to have sex with angels, but this time, it was human males. The enemy has shifted his strategy a bit. Sodom is a city that was known for multiple types of sin, but it's not fair to say that homosexuality was the only sin they were known for at the time. Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 and 50 says, Now this was a sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did abominable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. We definitely see those things displayed in the way the local men of the town treated their visiting angels. Nothing is more inhospitable than being gang-raped. That's horrific. And we even see Lot himself, who, by the way, was saved from the punishment, demonstrating his own wicked response to this wicked suggestion by the local men by offering them his virgin daughters. It's unfathomable. Many commentators think this was merely a bluff on his part or an offer he expected to be rejected. But regardless of what his intentions were, God's power intervenes. God's angels struck the local men with blindness in verse 11, which seems like an appropriate penalty for their lust and greed. God can't even find ten righteous men in the city. This is reminiscent of the days of Noah and the flood where only eight people survived. God could have destroyed the entire city, but he mercifully sent his angels to warn Lot and his family. Unfortunately, Lot only took them halfway seriously. He dilly-dallied until the angels forced him out. God destroyed Sodom and its neighboring city, Gomorrah, but he was merciful to Lot and his daughters, despite Lot's rebellious delays. Lot's wife had a different outcome. She was killed when she disobeyed the angels' command not to look back as they were leaving. It almost seemed like she was looking back longing for it. Sometimes people get frustrated when God destroys entire cities or peoples, but we have a glimpse here not only into God's motives, but God's mercy. After the destruction, Lot and his daughters moved to the mountains, and the daughters despaired that there was no one they could marry. Their fiancés had been destroyed in Sodom because they didn't heed the warning. So they took matters into their own hands, much like their great-aunt Sarah did with Hagar. Scripture hasn't yet forbidden incest, but there's a lot of desperation and a lot of wrong happening in this passage. And there's some mirroring here of what happened after the destruction of the flood between Noah and his son Ham, who was cursed because of his actions, whatever they were. Moving back to once again put some flesh on this story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, listen into this perspective about Lot's wife as found in Liz Curtis Higgs' book, Bad Girls of the Bible. It begins, A camera slowly pans the darkening skies above Sodom and Gomorrah. Night is falling, thrumming beneath it all a soundtrack. Low, rhythmic, in a minor key, the music makes the hair on her arms stand up. A swift and terrible judgment is coming, a disaster of truly biblical proportions. Earlier that same day, Abraham had bargained with the Lord to spare sinful Sodom and Gomorrah if just ten righteous men could be found there. When two angelic messengers arrived at Sodom that night, it seemed the only man worth saving was Abraham's nephew Lot. Working through these two angels, God rescued Lot and his family seven times by my count. Here's what the angels did. 1. Pulled Lot back into the house when the men of Sodom threatened him. 2. Blinded the men of Sodom so Lot could not be found. 3. Gave Lot a chance to warn his future son-in-laws. 4. Urged Lot to hurry and flee from the city at dawn. 5. Took Lot by the hand and led him out of Sodom. 6. Warned Lot to flee to the mountains. 7. 
allowed Lot to seek shelter in a nearby town. Though she remained unnamed from the first verse to the last, Lot's wife was present at each of those seven times. She saw and heard it all and was included in God's salvation efforts. Hurry, take your wife, it reads in verse 15. Once the angels grasped her hand, her hand, held on tight, led her away from the sins of her past, pointed her to a whole new future. This way, Mrs. Lot, go and sin no more. It's been said that on average people hear God's message of salvation seven times before responding. Interesting number. Lot, Mrs. Lot, and the two little Lots were given a clear choice seven times. Stay behind and be destroyed. Go forward and be saved. Why so many chances? Because the Lord's compassion, in Genesis chapter 19, verse 16. Because the Lord was merciful. He saves us. He forgives us. He has compassion on us. Not because of our goodness, but because of His grace. The Lord asked just one thing of Mrs. Lot and company. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere on the plane. Mrs. Lot didn't say a word, didn't reveal her thoughts, didn't confess her fears. She walked when her family walked, listened when her husband talked, heard him ask if he might hide in Zoar rather than flee all the way to the distant mountains. Then my life will be spared. My soul shall live. My life shall be saved, Lot said. For Lot, everything was in the key of me, me, me. That's why this story demonstrates the wideness of God's mercy. I would have never saved this man, but God would and did. The very moment that Lot, Mrs. Lot, and their daughters were safely in Zoar, all heaven broke loose. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire, if you will, a river of lava from the sky. Even the wildfires in Colorado and the F5 tornadoes in Oklahoma, horrific as they were, didn't approach a supernatural level of destruction. Everything living, every growing thing in Sodom and Gomorrah was utterly decimated. Because they were in a safe place, Lot and his two daughters were spared. Because she ignored so great a salvation, Mrs. Lot was not. This is her one-line biography. This is a single verse that says it all. But Lot's wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. A pillar of salt. Yes, really. The word melak literally means salt, and the same kind used for seasoning food and making an offering before the Lord. However could such a travesty happen? Let's find out. In the original Hebrew, not only does her name not appear in the verse, his name doesn't either. Only the word ishash, meaning wife, female, woman, every woman then. This is a cautionary tale for all of us. Don't look back. But she did. The order of the Hebrew words is reversed, suggesting she lagged behind her husband or was following behind him. Indeed, the custom of the time required a wife to walk a few steps behind her husband. No doubt her daughters walked in front of her as well so she could keep her eye on them. Typical mom move. So far, so good. Then she did the unthinkable, the impermissible. Like Eve, who broke God's single decree, don't eat. Mrs. Lot broke the one command given her, don't look. She looked toward the cities instead of focusing on her future. She looked expectantly, but in the wrong direction entirely. Oh, this truth cuts way too close for comfort. The Bible doesn't tell us she stopped, the other part of the angelic warning. Maybe she merely glanced over her shoulder and kept walking. But a little sin or a lot of sin, it was still sin. Whoever keeps a whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all, as it says in James chapter 2, verse 10. Tempting to say, not much grace in this story. Oh, but there was. Seven times. Instead of reflecting on the mercies of God, she looked back on her old life, remembering all the people, places, and things she loved and left behind. Is it just me, or are you hearing the ominous drumbeat of that soundtrack running all through this story? Warning, warning. Warning. A day will come when we must choose, forward or backward, life or death. Just as A leads to B, disobedience leads to death. God's made that clear in the Garden of Eden and demonstrated it here in a dramatic way. Mrs. Lot was changed. She was turned into something other than a woman. The last thing she saw, a swirling inferno of ash and sand, wrapped her in its deadly embrace. She turned into a column, a statue, a block, hard, immovable, stuck. Stuck. Yes, we get that. Can't move forward, can't move backward. That's not where God wants us to be, beloved. There's no life in such a place. The Hebrew word is translated pillar here, though elsewhere the same word is rendered garrison or deputy. Until I saw Mrs. Lot on the western shore of the Dead Sea, I didn't realize how well the word suited her. There she stands, well, at least the sign says it's her, 
arms folded, chin jutted out, looking in the wrong direction for eternity. If we leap forward 1,500 years, give or take a century, we'll find Jesus teaching his disciples about the coming kingdom of God. Guess which story he used to illustrate this point. Jesus told them, It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Luke chapter 17, verse 28-29. Right, we just watched it happen. Terrible. Jesus continued, It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one who is in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. Luke chapter 17, verses 30-33. There it is, the takeaway from this story, spelled out for us by our own Rabbi Jesus. Let go. Follow God. Don't hang on. Don't look back. Did you catch that takeaway? From Jesus, no less, my friends. Let go. Follow God. Don't hang on. Don't look back. Such short sentences that preach well, but my, oh my, they are much harder to live out day to day. Am I right? Help us all, Lord Jesus. Moving on to our final reading in today's episode, listen in now to Genesis chapter 20. Abraham moved south to the Negev and lived for a while between Kadesh and Shur, and then moved on to Greer. While living there as a foreigner, Abraham introduced his wife Sarah by saying, She is my sister. So King Abimelech of Greer sent for Sarah and had her brought to him at his palace. But that night God came to Abimelech in a dream and told him, You are a dead man, for that woman you have taken is already married. But Abimelech had not slept with her yet, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Didn't Abraham tell me she is my sister? And she herself say, Yes, he is my brother. I acted in complete innocence. My hands are clean. In the dream God responded, Yes, I know you are innocent, and that's why I kept you from sinning against me, and why I did not let you touch her. Now return the woman to her husband, and he will pray for you, for he is a prophet. Then you will live. But if you don't return her to him, you can be sure that you and all your people will die. Abimelech got up early the next morning and quickly called all the servants together. When he told them what had happened, his men were terrified. Then Abimelech called for Abraham. What have you done to us? He demanded. What crime have I committed that deserves treatment like this, making me and my kingdom guilty of this great sin? No one should ever do what you have done, whatever possessed you to do such a thing. Abraham replied, I thought, this is a godless place. They will want my wife and will kill me to get her. And she really is my sister, for we both have the same father but different mothers, and I married her. When God called me to leave my father's home and to travel from place to place, I told her, Do me a favor. Wherever we go, tell the people that I am your brother. Then Abimelech took some of his sheep and goats, cattle, and male and female servants, and he presented them to Abraham. He also returned his wife, Sarah, to him. Then Abimelech said, Look over my land and choose any place where you would like to live. And he said to Sarah, Look, I am giving your brother one thousand pieces of silver in the presence of all these witnesses. This is to compensate you for any wrong I may have done to you. This will settle any claim against me, and your reputation is cleared. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants, so they could have children. For the Lord had caused all the women to be infertile because of what had happened with Abraham's wife, Sarah. The Bible recap has this to say about what we see happening. Tara Lee Cobble says, Moving on to chapter 20, we zoom in on Abraham, who is on the move again. This time, he's in King Abimelech's territory, and he gets flashbacks of when he was in Egypt and Pharaoh stole his wife, Sarah. So Abraham goes back to his old tricks, pretending she's not his wife. And King Abimelech stole her away, just like Pharaoh had. But one major difference is that King Abimelech didn't sleep with her, and we have reason to believe that Pharaoh did, since Scripture says he took her to be his wife. Sarah's kidnapping could really put a wrench in God's plan for her to have a baby with Abraham, so it's a good thing God's plans can't be stopped. God rescued them again by appearing to the king in a dream. In verse 6, God tells Abimelech that he kept him from sinning. God thwarted his efforts to sin. I love that. And as for Abraham, he keeps trying to use his own plans to protect himself and Sarah, but both times, his efforts only got them in deeper trouble, and it was only God who got them out. In verse 7, God refers to Abraham as a prophet. This is the first time the word is used in scripture. It carries a meaning in the weight of being a truth speaker, a human messenger of God to the people. I find this slightly ironic since Abraham had twice told half-truths, but that just goes to show God's mercy and grace toward Abraham. Okay, friends, I know with 100% certainty that there is so much more that could be said here, studied here, about chapters 20. Well, truthfully, about chapters 16 through 20. 
But as always, my OOBTers, we are running out of time. (laughs) As we enter our time of prayer, I wanted to share with you that this one is a bit different because while preparing for this episode, I heard this song called God Turn It Around over and over in multiple places. As I heard these words on repeat, I found myself saying pieces of the lyrics as prayers in my heart and mind. With that in mind, will you bow your heads and join me as we pray these lyrics together now? I'm praying God come and turn this thing around. God, turn it around. I'm calling on the name that changes everything. God, turn it around. All of my hope is in the name of Jesus. Breakthrough will come. Come in the name of Jesus. He is up to something. God is doing something right now. He is healing someone. He is saving someone. He is moving mountains making a way for someone. God is doing something right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh, friends, I don't know about you, but I feel so hopeful to be reminded that no matter the circumstances we face, no matter how long we have been waiting, how long suffering the hurts in this life are, God is doing something right now. Thank you, Father God. Thank you. Okay, so friends, if you've liked this episode, could you share it with a friend? Subscribe, rate, review, you know, do all the things people tend to do with a podcast. (laughs) I sure do want to thank you in advance. And as I mentioned a bit ago, don't forget that the Open Our Bibles Together with M. Faring podcast releases every other Wednesday. Up next time, we continue with Abraham's story and the long-awaited, much-anticipated birth of he and Sarah's son, Isaac. So much goodness to be found as we lean in to discover more about our God, who is a waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper. Please be sure to listen in next time. You don't want to miss this one. I promise. This is M. Faring, and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends.